This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah, this is your conscience talking. Have you been a good critic this year? I've been working real hard. It's been about a year working on Seeing and Believing, and I think at this point I can finally say I'm a real critic. Oh, so so the Blue Fairy made a good investment with you then, you're saying? Yeah, uh, just so long as, you know, my nose doesn't start growing out. Like, we'll, we'll keep talking really, really quickly, and, and hopefully we can avoid any of those side effects there. All right, I'm keeping an eye on that schnoz. Listeners, we are going to be talking about the latest adaptation of the classic tale of Pinocchio with our review this week of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, airing on Netflix. And this week, we are also going to be talking about another new-ish release, Park Chanuk's decision to leave, which has to do with characters who may or may not be telling the truth about who they are. Okay, Sarah, we're, we're about to go off the air here in a second. I'm going to ask you some questions, and believe me, I will know if you're lying. Whatever it is, I didn't do it. But listeners, you can listen to us discuss both of those movies on this episode of Seeing and Believing, episode 361. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but... <laughs> You don't. Over there! What is that? Papa! <gasps> it speaks! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! People are sometimes afraid of things they don't know. I don't understand! Yes, we're here on episode 361 of Seeing and Believing, and it might surprise you to hear this, Sarah, but I'm not actually a marionette. There are no <laughs> strings on me. Um, Somebody else hasn't been dictating your opinions to yeah. you? No, I, I do just gesticulate a lot here in the in the recording studio, but that's just the way I am. It's not because anybody is jerking <laughs> some invisible string attached to my wrists. Listeners, we are going to be talking about Pinocchio here in a little bit. We're also going to be talking about the latest film to make a splash over here from South Korea, Decision to Leave, in the second segment. But uh, let's turn our attention to this new take on Pinocchio, Sarah. This is a take on the classic tale from a director that longtime listeners probably know. I'm, I'm a little bit in the bag for, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll, it remains to be seen if this one's going to have the same kind of magic for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very curious to know what your feeling is on Guillermo del Toro and animated fairy tales, because we all know how you feel about Pan's Labyrinth, um, but I'll be curious to know how you feel about Guillermo del Toro's take on a story that feels a little bit more like familiar fairy tale. Yeah, well, let's get into it then. Uh, del Toro and Mark Gustafson's take on the Carlo Collodi story is actually the second to come out in 2022 after the Robert Zemeckis remake that went straight 
straight to streaming on Disney Plus and was promptly forgotten. Where the story in Zemeckis' version would be familiar to anyone who knows Disney's 1940 adaptation, Del Toro and Gustafson offer a darker, more self-consciously complex retelling that weaves in an afterlife presided over by a sphinx slash seraph and skeletal rabbits, and the real-life context of the rising tide of Italian fascism overseen by Benito Mussolini. Mm. Geppetto is less kindly and more flawed. Pinocchio himself has as much in common with Frankenstein's monster as with the smooth-edged cartoon of Walt Disney. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. uh, that will be new here, even if you think you're familiar with this classic tale. So maybe we'll start there to get the discussion kicked off. Sarah, how successful do you think Del Toro and Gustafson are with this alternative take? You know, I'm really glad that you mentioned like the the level of darkness and complexity in this movie, because I really do think that Del Toro and Gustafson are trying their best to tell not really an adult version of the tale, but a more mature version of the tale. I think it would have worked a little bit better for me if it had been a little bit more focused. There's a lot going on here. Like you said, there's the rise of Italian fascism. There is that afterlife theme. There is this theme of Pinocchio being um, both an innocent and completely unchecked and unable to understand the difference between right and wrong. Um, And I think that all of that would have meshed a little bit more if the movie hadn't felt quite so episodic. Um, There are a couple of different threads about Pinocchio becoming an entertainer and running away to join the circus in order to be less of a burden on his papa. There's um, a bit of a thread about acceptance and obedience, and then also, of course, the aforementioned thread about the rise of Italian fascism. And while each of those pieces, I think, work on the individual level, for me, they never really fully cohered into a story that I found 100% compelling. It's a gorgeous movie, and I definitely want to get into the art and the craft behind that, but I'm curious to know if overall this movie worked for you. I think uh, overall it did work for me. I, I mean, with caveats, I don't think you're wrong that the movie definitely kind of takes a shotgun blast approach to... (laughs) It's as if Del Toro and Gustafson, they just have all these great ideas about how to uh, retell Pinocchio, Mm -hmm. and they notice all these thematic resonances, and they just, they can't pick one, so they just go with all of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, in some ways that's not necessarily a problem for a tale like this, because I think... Pinocchio itself does maybe lend itself relatively well to a more episodic retelling. Like even in the, you know, I haven't read the Collodi story, but I'm familiar with the Disney uh, 1940 story. You know, there's there's the monster section, there's the Pleasure Island section. Mm-hmm. They they all exist in the same world, but there's not really a sense that they're connected on a on a deep uh, fundamental level. So. The shotgun blast approach isn't a fatal flaw for me. Mm-hmm. It does kind of lead to a situation where you're unsure exactly where your focus should be. To me, this felt like a lot more of, weirdly, a lot more of a Geppetto story than a Pinocchio story. Mm-hmm. In that Geppetto is seems like he's actually the one who needs a moral education more so than Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. The way that Del Toro kind of positions Pinocchio as a Christ figure mm-hmm. is 
very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I actually kind of loved that. And I want to talk about that more because I think there's a lot to dig into there. Um, But the, the side effect of that is that the purported arc that Pinocchio has to undergo where in order to become a quote unquote real boy, he has to learn right from wrong and learn to be obedient and to take some responsibility for his own actions. Mm -hmm. That chafes a little bit against the the Christ imagery that is brought into this. So yeah, there's, there's a lot here that I don't know that say that I'd say it doesn't work. I'd say that there's a lot of movies in here fighting for supremacy and (laughs) maybe a more focused approach would have been to its benefit. But I think I might have dug it a little bit more than you. Yeah, I I just I feel bad being down on this movie because I really did want to like it. And I think some of the elements that didn't work for me were that shotgun blast approach. There's also an element of um, musical here that feels like it was sort of kicked off and then forgotten. (laughs) There are a handful of songs. And some of them are they're fine. Um, But I think where the movie really has its strengths is when it decides to pick a tone and really lean into it. Um, There's this incredible scene where Geppetto decides that he's going to make a replacement for his dead son. And it's shot almost exactly like Uh, the 1931 Frankenstein, where Geppetto is up in his tower on the top of a cliff and there's lightning and it's dark and he's gone a little bit mad with grief. And he carves this puppet very much in the same way that the Frankenstein monster is brought to life in a bunch of different movie versions of that particular story. And I think del Toro is really having a lot of fun here with both the horror of that scene, like there's a lot of good canted angles and and Dutch angles and lightning flashes for emphasis, but then also the scene immediately after when Geppetto wakes up and realizes what exactly he's done, and he's kind of horrified with it. And the character of Pinocchio is kind of a little bit off-putting because he doesn't know how to move around in his own body yet. Elements like that, where we just get these two characters trying to figure out who they are in this world and who the other person is in this world, and then starting to build their identities around that, that works for me. I don't think the rest of the stitching in the movie necessarily works because once you get past that element of discovery, it really does feel like we're moving on from scene to scene. And occasionally we get glimpses of that same sense of awe and horror in that initial creation scene. Like there's a scene set in a church that I really want to talk about because it kind of brings out that Pinocchio as a Christ figure imagery really, really strongly. Um, But the rest of the movie just doesn't really live up to that initial mood and tone for me. I mean, let's maybe let's dig into that Christ imagery a little bit, because I think what I really found compelling to think about with what this film is doing is specifically that church. So Geppetto early on has, we, we've learned that he has been contracted by the uh, parish priest to restore and paint a wooden, uh, a, you know, a huge wooden crucifix, mm-hmm. you know, with the, with the savior hanging on it. And then of course, later on, he also uh, makes Pinocchio out of, out of wood as well. And the contrast between uh, this crucifix, which is, you know, it's very polished, sanded down. Geppetto is making an effort to uh, finely paint it, you know, f- you know, paint the, the blood on Christ's brow, mm-hmm. juxtaposed with the character design of Pinocchio, where 
he you know he's he's ungainly he moves strange he's got uh geppetto's kind of hacked him together out of various parts and there's there are these bent nails in in pinocchio's back that geppetto uh while drunk and mad with grief kind of nails his head to his body and they're they're all bent and misshapen the the contrast between the way that the the parish reacts to um Pinocchio versus the veneration they feel for this very polished Christ mm-hmm. is I think very telling. It's it's sort of uh it makes you think of how uh Jesus himself was received in his own day. You know, everyone was expecting the Messiah to be this grand king who would come and liberate them all. No one was expecting him to uh come in this this uh kind of unexpected uh form that was very counter to their their expectations Mm -hmm. um and i think that's really interesting to see del toro and gustafson use the tale of pinocchio to bring that sort of disconnect from the gospels into this story i Mm -hmm. think that's great and i really like how that kind of encourages the viewer as well to sort of examine you know why why do we react to um, certain figures in certain ways and how dearly do we hold kind of the sanitized view of uh, goodness and and uh, the least of these rather than dealing with the reality of the world around us. Uh, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, I think you make a good point there. And I think, um, I don't know, this movie is also very smart about appearances, which makes sense. It's stop motion. I do think that it is kind of the perfect medium for a story like this where you're talking about um, appearances and what we expect and the way that we expect other people to be and how we expect them to be. Like Geppetto literally creates Pinocchio to, to be a replacement for his dead son. And the moment he realizes that Pinocchio can't ever be that, there's sort of a, a rejection there, which feels a lot smaller scale than, you know, rejecting Christ based on <laughs> appearance and what you were expecting. But there is still that that thematic resonance there. Um, and I do think that the movie is smart about the way that all of these other characters appear and present themselves as well. Like like we've kind of alluded to before, there is a very strong thread about the rise of Italian fascism in the 1940s and 30s. Del Toro and Gustafson, they're very willing to kind of lean into that theme. They're not just going to allude to it. They're going to lean in very hard into the way that fascism sort of rears its head and presents itself as like a strong force and a powerful force. Um, there's a, a um, character in the village who kind of leads everybody else down this road towards fascism, and and he presents himself with a strong jaw, and he wants his son to follow in his footsteps, and he leads like a, a basically a camp for boys to learn how to fight for the fatherland. Um, and you get a lot of background posters that are extolling, you know, the quote unquote virtues of, of Mussolini and the joys and, um, you know, the importance of, of fighting for your land in kind of kind of a, a blind acceptance that, you know, fascism is just here and we have to follow it. And the movie is very smart about the innocence with which Pinocchio kind of follows along with that until it's sort of like it's not even really pointed out to him, but he doesn't really seem to accept it once he realizes just how wrong and awful it is. Um, but the movie is also very smart about how fascism presents itself as being stronger than it is. There's a great sequence 
about the midpoint where Mussolini finally shows up and he's made to be completely ridiculous, both by his juxtaposition against all of the other characters that he's surrounded by. He's shown as being kind of small and petty and, and not particularly smart. Um, but then also the way that all of the other characters, you know, treat him as this kind of like lion figure when he really is anything but. Um, I don't know. Like, I I do think that given a little bit of additional room to play and a little bit more, I think, strength, I, I would have appreciated those differences between the ways that Italian fascism is presented in this versus the innocence of Pinocchio a little bit more, because there's there feels to me like there's kind of a disconnect between the two. Pinocchio is told very early on that he needs to never lie and always obey his papa. And he takes those directions as basically like carte blanche to, to follow the direction of the the circus master that he runs away with. And that kind of feels as though he's willing to follow, you know, the dictates of fascism as well without really necessarily discern, discerning between the two of them. And I think that for me is, is where this kind of starts to fall apart because it feels as though the movie has a couple of different morals that it's really trying to to follow through on there's that element of standing up to fascism there's also that element of you know don't lie and obey your parents and also your parents should not believe that you are a burden like there's got to be love there that's kind of reciprocated between both in order for that relationship to really work and then there's also this additional refrain of um you have to do your best because that's the best anybody can ever do. That's kind of weak sauce, yeah. Yeah, it really is. It feels like it it feels like somebody saw that written down on paper and thought that sounds really smart and didn't really think about how it was said out loud. And I think all of those things rolled together. They don't necessarily contradict each other, but they don't really feel all that strong at the same time. I, I wonder if part of the problem is the way that Pinocchio is written he's he's almost not really a moral agent he's just hmm. he's so guileless that he sort of ceases to have any sort of sense of his own moral agency and the the idea that the, the point of Pinocchio and uh, in, in other adaptations, the, the existence of Pleasure Island is that Pinocchio kind of has to learn that don't lie isn't just a rule to be followed. You don't lie because it makes you into it. It takes you by degrees t down a path that eventually turns you into somebody else. Mm. And the horror of Pleasure Island is that literally all the, all the naughty boys eventually literally become turned into something else. And that's kind of the hinge point for Pinocchio's own journey when he, when he realizes, oh no, what have I done? I need to get back to where I've been. Mm -hmm. And the way this film kind of frames that, the, the Pleasure Island section is taken up with this uh, this boot camp where Pinocchio is taken with other boys to learn to fight. And it's sort of uh, simpatico in the sense that the boys are being twisted into something other than what they should be. They should be boys. Mm -hmm. um, instead, uh, fascism and their fathers are twisting them into what they think of as real men, which is to be violent uh, stupid, unquestioning of authority, and uh, looking only out for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is Pinocchio throughout that entire sequence is sort of, he's so innocent, it's as if he doesn't comprehend the horror of what's being done to the boys here. He, he regards it as more or less a game, mm -hmm. which is not entirely a satisfying portrait of of pureness like purity isn't naivete those two things aren't synonyms and it seems like mm -hmm. 
in some moments the film is conflating the two and that that's a little bit disappointing yeah it definitely is i i do think that there is a distinction though between um Pinocchio's naivete and the rest of the boys not recognizing what it is that's happening to them too and I do think that the movie is a little bit aware of it I just kind of wish that it had been willing to underline that a little bit more there's kind of a war game that the boys are told to play where they have you know paintball guns essentially and um, it's kind of like a reverse capture the flag and the boys end up cooperating with each other in order for both of them to win at the same time um and it's made abundantly clear that they just don't understand the rules of this this fascist game, essentially. And so they're going to both lose because they're both going to have something taken away from them, namely probably their, their innocence and that purity and maybe a little bit of the naivete as well. And I think that that could have been a little bit more clear if the naivete had gone away but the purity hadn't been taken away if that makes sense and it just it really just does feel like um it's there as a, an action sequence and then pinocchio has to move on to his next adventure and meet his next cast of characters it's surprising to me too that the the film would feel a little bit threadbare in that moment because when you think of something like pan's labyrinth mm -hmm. where you do have kind of a an, another child character somebody who doesn't fully understand the full import of what's going on around her and is kind of set a series of fairy tale like tasks to complete um the the journey that she goes on she kind of achieves what you're talking about here where she is still a child she still um has a certain innocence about her but that doesn't preclude her clearly understanding that there are there are lines that must not be crossed mm -hmm. um and i have to be true to a certain c code even if um the the forces uh, the forces around me that are much bigger than i am are trying to push me down a different path. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think Pinocchio, it, it equivocates a little bit there. And I don't know if that's because Del Toro in, and Gustafson in sort of their shotgun approach sort of lost the plot a little bit, mm -hmm. or if they think that because this is a ch explicitly a more kid-friendly story, they should be trying to, for lack of a better term, dumb it down or, or at mm -hmm. least make it simpler. But I think weirdly in in trying to make it simpler they actually make it more com confused and murky yeah yeah it's funny i was thinking of pan's labyrinth while watching this i was also thinking a little bit about nightmare alley as well mm. um mm -hmm. specifically with the carnival scenes there's a lot of of visual resonance there between the carnival train in nightmare alley and then the carnival like wagons here in pinocchio too um and i think that that movie is Nightmare Alley specifically is is willing to get a little bit more nasty and more willing to show like what happens if you cross that line. And I think it's stronger for it. And maybe, maybe it really is just the episodic nature of Pinocchio that you just lose sight of that moral and sight of that moral certainty. That being said, um, I feel like I've been really down on this movie and there are a lot of elements that I do appreciate very much, especially the places where Del Toro and Gustafson take the story a little bit beyond where we're familiar with it, um, especially the moments where we get to go a little bit past death and see what's <laughs> on the other side. Um, the character design for, 
I don't even know what the creature's name is, um, but she's she's voiced by Tilda Swinton, and she's kind of like this manticore at the end of time, essentially. I think somebody refers to her as just processing. Um, and she explains the rules behind why Pinocchio can't really die, but whenever he does die or get wounded horribly, like he has to stay there for a little while. And it kind of works as imparting a lesson of, you know, the the preciousness of human life because Pinocchio isn't able to participate in it when he's gone, you know, beyond the veil briefly. And the design here and the color work is just absolutely stunning. Um, the manticore has these wings that are covered in eyes and these horns that are covered in eyes as well. Like there's a lot of very strong biblical kind of apocalyptic imagery that's going on here that just doesn't really look like anything I've seen before. And I, I do think I, I've mentioned before, um, stop motion really lends itself well to a story like this, especially when you're talking about a character who is an innocent who is kind of tossed to and fro by other influences on him um i think even the medium just lends itself to the weight of that idea and then also um the sense of you know utter control that you have to have over these dolls in order to be able to make them move and appear like they're moving effortlessly you know there's something about so many of del toro's films that feels so there's there's a spiritual vision to him i i don't want to theorize too much about del toro's own views on on spirituality uh extrapolating from his art Mm -hmm. but it feels like so many of his films do kind of have this vision of there's something more than life like it's not just pure humanism Mm -hmm. in a del toro story you think of the that that climactic revelation uh in pan's labyrinth when ophelia um does kind of get a glimpse of of the uh of paradise essentially when she comes into her own in the fairy kingdom mm-hmm. it's this wonderful vision of of that moment at the end of time when uh, uh somebody is told well done good and faithful servant mm-hmm. it's it's just a wonderful vision of homecoming and paradise and peace um hellboy 2 the golden army has a uh, minor character very similar actually to the manticore in this film a uh, uh multi-eyed uh sort of angel of death sort of character who brings another character back from the precipice of of uh of nothingness of annihilation mm-hmm. um you you get this sense that from del toro's films that he he knows that there's something there's something more than this life and being conscious of that and um taking it seriously not just as a nice story that we believe but as a uh, present reality that uh, can be lived into or not, mm-hmm. I think is really compelling. And I liked how this film took it very seriously, but in a register that felt appropriate for the story of Pinocchio. This isn't uh, too heavy, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's the, the Manticore is not uh, sk- spooky, but not scary. If, the, if that makes sense, there, mm-hmm. there's a... Um, it's not a smooth-edged uh, cartoon version of the afterlife, mm-hmm. but also it's not threatening. It's something kind of other, maybe. And, and I, I appreciate that otherness, I guess, in Del Toro's spiritual vision where he recognizes that there's something beyond us. It is It is not us. You know, hum- humanity isn't the pinnacle of creation. There's something else. And we may not fully understand it, and it may not be entirely in line with what we can understand as good there is something about it that it's comforting to know that these 
these higher powers, these these others than us are are out there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really one of Del Toro's strengths is that he's not willing to talk down to us about these kinds of concepts and he's willing to let us just kind of sit in the mystery and appreciate, you know, the design of something that evokes that there is something more, but he's also not going to explain every single one of the rules that makes it work. He'll give us enough for us to be able to comprehend the story, but he's not going to talk down to us and try to tell us this is precisely how everything and every single little rule of this works. And I think that that makes the spiritual reality of this movie a lot more believable. And that that's kind of why I do appreciate a lot of what he's trying to do here, where he's willing to recognize that there is a mystery and that there is, you know, a, a sense of something greater than us and that than ourselves. And he's willing to let us just kind of sit with that in those moments. So it doesn't feel like he's talking down to kids, if that makes sense. And I do appreciate that element of this movie quite a lot. I, I, I think Del Toro understands like few other directors that like he, he gets what fairy tales are for. Hmm. I feel like I, I think that a lot of uh, storytellers uh, and adults in general just kind of think of fairy tales like, oh, that's for kiddie stuff. It has to be dumb because it's for kids or it has to be it has to be very straightforward so kids can understand it or it has to be kind of utilitarian. It's supposed to teach kids something. Hmm. And I think Del Toro understands that fairy tales, they can be instructive but they don't have to be didactic. Mm-hmm. And that distinction, I think, and the way in which he's able to use his imaginative powers to couch it in a story that feels very immersive and strange, but also familiar at the same time, mm-hmm. that's a difficult balance to nail. And Del Toro usually manages to nail it, even in, even when he's not entirely successful at creating... Uh, a film like a a cohesive film like you know we've we've already talked about how this film could have been more successful but for me uh i just i really like how he does some of these individual constituent parts Mm -hmm. and i find the um the the overall vision of this universe to be so compelling that I'm willing to forgive it its flaws. <laughs> I think you can keep that overall universe, but I'll definitely sit in some of those those more mysterious and, and more unsettling moments in this movie. So I'm definitely not going to throw all of it out. That's for sure. You're, you're not going to throw the manticore out with the, <laughs> with with the, the sands of haunted time. marionette <laughs> bathwater. I don't know. That metaphor got away from me, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and so did this movie a little bit, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, a little bit. If, if art doesn't get away from us every now and then, uh, you know, uh, we need that kind of art too, maybe. They did their best and it was the best that anyone could do. Oh, no. <laughs> well, listeners, that is our review of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. It is streaming on Netflix. Uh, I believe it started uh, this weekend, actually. So mm-hmm. you should be able to find it if you are a Netflix subscriber. Uh, so let us know your thoughts if you get a chance to see this. Uh, I, of course, being a del Toro fanboy and especially interested in what you think of his latest effort you can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod. don't go anywhere we're going to be sharing some of the thoughts that we received from you in the conversation segment and then moving on to our review of park chanuk's decision to leave this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sarah, last week we talked about the Fablemans. You loved the Fablemans. I was more mixed on it, but I was really looking forward to hearing what our listeners had to say about that film because there's obviously a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jonathan Kana wrote in and he sure didn't disappoint. He sent us an email that said, in the spirit of keeping the conversation going, thank you, Jonathan, very appropriate for this segment, I just wanted to offer a small comment on the read I came away with for the Fablemans. For me, the theme-setting sequence of the whole film was laid out in the sequence with Uncle Boris in Sammy's bedroom. Mm. Specifically, the line where he says something like, your family you love, but this, Sammy's editing machine, this I think you love maybe a little bit more. Mm. For me, this film draws a close parallel between Mitzi's decision to pursue her morally questionable vision of a fulfilled life and Sammy's own inability to resist the siren call of cinema. In this way, it simultaneously lionizes and interrogates its protagonist, it reads like the autobiography of a monumental filmmaker who has, from the vantage of the high mountain peak, obtained a sober reckoning of the high relational cost of his art, enabling him to finally make peace with his mother and discover a quiet admiration for his father. I'd be interested in hearing if that theme resonated with either of you as strongly. Yeah, I love that read of that movie. Um, Again, like like we both said, uh, I'm pretty high on the Fablemans, and I love that conversation scene with Uncle Boris because there's so much bewilderment on Sammy's part because he doesn't get what Boris is trying to tell him. And that scene played from the outside and then kind of in hindsight a little bit really feels like it's Spielberg talking to his younger self a little bit as well. So yeah, I'm definitely on board with that read, Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan, I I really enjoyed reading your email and I think you're spot on about that scene and also about the way that the movie kind of works to be sort of a retroactive reappraisal of of Spielberg's parents. I really liked a scene towards the end where Essentially, it's almost as if we sense Spielberg having a reconciliation with his mother long, long after the fact, where they have a a frank conversation and they reach an understanding. And Mm -hmm. I think you sense that from the film's take on the father as well. So, yeah, I think that that's a a good take. And also, really, I appreciate uh, Jonathan highlighting the the film's kind of slightly self-critical take on the artist and their role like it's not Mm -hmm. it's not all cinema worship in the fablemans and i think that's what makes it a a cut above yeah he's not like chastising himself but he's also not lionizing himself either and i think that's a really tricky balance to strike and honestly i think spielberg managed to pull it off for sure Mm -hmm. so listeners we also heard from you over on twitter every week i like to send out a question just to keep the conversation going about the movies that we're thinking about in any given week so this week i said um we're going to be covering guillermo del toro's pinocchio which we just talked about and park chanuk's decision to leave Both have sumptuous settings and production design, so we want to know if you could live in the world of any movie, which one would it be? And uh, we had some listeners who really did not disappoint. So uh, Kevin Abiel Chessie responded back with Paddington, and she said that she wants to live in the world of Paddington because she wants to live in a colorful, diverse neighborhood where nearly everyone will be kind if you give them a chance. And also the brown house is chef's kiss. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am wholly on board with the the Paddington love, Abby. Thanks 
for reminding me that I need to rewatch that. And she's right that it's just, it's a nice vision to be, to be sort of like, if you can be kind, everyone else will be kind back. Like that's just, it's a nice vision of, of the way the world maybe should be. Mm-hmm. I'd like to live in that world. Should be. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a world that I would not object to living with either. Um, Ron Sturry also wrote in and said, Downton Abbey. Okay, if that's too TV for you, even though they made two films, how about Moulin Rouge from 2001? And Ron, we do say that this is a film and television podcast. So I think Downton Abbey, fair game. Moulin Rouge is the one that I'd go with out of the, those two, though. I would never live in the in the world of Moulin Rouge. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm a Baz Luhrmann skeptic, so you know, take take my opinion with a grain of salt, but not not going to live in that world. I, I like watching it, maybe wouldn't mm-hmm. want to live in it. Yeah, that's fair. So, what is a world that you would like to live in? So, in in all fairness, you know, uh, I don't have objections about against music and color per se, and this might just be because we just watched it, but I wouldn't mind living in the world of the young girls of Rochefort. Oh, I love to hear that. The you know, just everybody's brightly dressed. Uh, romance exists and is, you know, a powerful force. Um, there's that cool cafe that's almost all glass. Like I would, that seems like a a nice place to live. You don't have to pay for your Belgian fries or your (laughs) coffee. (laughs) That's also, uh, might have something to do with it as well. Even the, the slightly, you know, scuzzy characters, like the, the two carnies, like they don't mean any harm. They're just, you know, they're just a little bit of caddish. Like Mm -hmm. that's nice. You know, nobody really means anybody else true malice so maybe i'm combining ron's and abby's answers a little bit in that option that's definitely a a fair thing to do i think it's a great world and one that i would be happy living with but um when i was thinking about my own answer to this question i decided i really couldn't live without a miyazaki world so if i had to pick anyone i would probably live in the world of my neighbor totoro where there is no conflict whatsoever except for very mild internal conflict and it can all be resolved just by talking to each other and maybe with the help of a magical cat bus as well. I the cat bus living in a world with a cat bus would be pretty great. I also kind of like the idea of the idea of, you know, the the woods behind your house. You can walk into those woods and you just might meet a Totoro. Mm-hmm. That is also a very attractive prospect. <laughs> Listeners, if you have any thoughts about what kind of movie world you would like to live in, this question's still open, and you can tweet back at us at Pod, or you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now it's time for what would normally be the watch list segment. But because we are living in a world where uh, we have award season movies, Kevin, we're going to be talking about not one, but two new releases this week. So we just talked about Pinocchio. Now we're going to be talking about a very different world and a very different kind of movie. And that is Park Chanuk's decision to leave, um, which is about Jong Hai Jun, played by Park Hyle, is a seasoned detective who is based in Busan with a good reputation and a nasty case of insomnia. While investigating the death of a mountaineer, he comes to suspect the dead man's wife, Song Seo Rai, played by Tong Wei. 
Hygiene and Seorai are thrown together by mere circumstance, but the glue that holds them together is much harder to name and also much harder to overcome. And what appears to be solid bedrock underneath the two of them turns out to be much shakier ground. So, Kevin, I'm curious to know, uh, did you find yourself on strong footing with this movie or um, did this movie catch you off balance? So the thing I love about Parks movies is that it's both at the same time. Mm. He, he he's one of these directors. Just his his command of style and the way that he his movies just have such momentum. Mm. You can't help but feel like this guy knows what he's doing, and I'm going to follow this movie wherever it goes, even if it goes to crazy places, as they so often do. <laughs> yes, uh, and that's maybe where the second part comes in. Is he's so sure-handed about keeping you off balance and making you kind of question your own assumptions about these characters and what you're seeing and how you should be feeling about them. Mm -hmm. And I think Decision to Leave is just the latest example of that. I really dug this film a lot. And um, I actually, so I I watched it uh, a while, you know, like a couple weeks ago and revisited it just to kind of brush up my memory for this recording and loved it just as much the second time, if, if not more. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Though. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very curious to hear you talk more about this. Yeah. Um, oh, man, it's it feels so good to sit down and watch a movie and to know right away that you are in the hands of a master and to know that they know where they're going and they're going to keep you guessing about where they're going. And this movie doesn't really play out like a mystery per se, but I do think that it has a lot to do with the mysterious ways in which other people can appear to us, even if we think that we understand them at first glance. Um, I just, I love the visual style that Park Chanuk is 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 working with here. I appreciate the willingness to go off in slightly different directions that don't feel like they're fully connected to the outside plot, but turn out to have every single inch of thematic resonance with what's going on. Um, I don't like calling movies like literary, but this does feel like it's got the complexity of a novel because it's willing to go off in those directions. And even the recursive pieces and scenes in this movie end up being really rewarding in the end because they kind of stack on those those thematic ideas of identity, of something being lost in translation, um, of just not knowing what on earth is going on in the head of the person who's sitting across the table from you, basically at any like point in time. And I love that he does this with such a deft touch of both menace and romance at the same time. Um, I don't know. It's totally, it feels like on any, unlike anything else that I have seen this year. And I don't know if it's going to be matched by anything else that I see for the rest of the year. I mean, I, you're not wrong in estimating that way. I think it's tremendous. And I, what I liked about this film is just the way that it's, it, it's so sensuous. And by that, I mean, just, it has so part Park is so good at evoking the senses mm-hmm. in this film, like the sense of smell, the sense of touch, um, the the way that uh, uh, a droplet of of moisture kind of just runs off the the edge of somebody's hand, mm-hmm. like all of those things work together. And you're right. I, I'm glad you brought up kind of how romantic it is because 
it's so weird how how swooningly romantic this relationship is between a an accused murderer and the detective who's investigating her. Um, and I think the way that this film kind of almost sweeps you off your feet is kind of putting you in the same position as the detective in that you're kind of swept up in the feelings of of it all and the the sensuous uh, interest of the filmmaking. And you have to kind of remind yourself every now and then, like, wait, wait, hold the phone. This person probably killed at least one person. Mm-hmm. Um how do I feel about wanting these two crazy kids to make it work when one of them is a married detective who is investigating the other one for murder? Mm-hmm. It's I, I like how <laughs> Park is able to really uh, kind of sweep you along and in in a way that you kind of you, you want to give in in the same way that the detective in this film wants to give in uh, to his feelings for this woman against all of his instincts, moral, uh, law enforcement wise, all of it. And I, I just think that's, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also uh, gives you a lot to chew on after the experience is over. It's not pure entertainment. There's something underlying it too. And I think just Park's ability to hold those two things in tension is tremendous. And he's willing to do that without letting either of the characters off the hook for who they are and what they're prior obligations are as well. There's this great moment where Siorai calls Hygiene, the detective, to her apartment late at night, and there's a cut directly to him driving his car in the middle of the night back to Busan, where the two are. And um, the shot is a cut to the speedometer of the car going past (laughs) 80 miles an hour, and then the focus shifts and the focus shifts to the wedding ring on the detective's finger. And that's just such a great way of communicating both what he should and should not be doing in that moment, and also what's on his mind as well. Because I'm I'm firmly convinced he has not forgotten about his duties. He has not forgotten about his wife. He literally left his wife asleep in bed when he went to go visit the woman he suspects of murder. And yet he's going to go and give in to that instinct anyway. And I appreciate that that's still something that's at the back of his mind. Like, Park isn't going to let us forget about that, even as he's also going to attempt to sweep us off our feet. He's good at showing characters that are able to to lie to themselves just enough to take another step down the primrose path, right? <laughs> like, the, the, like you said, that this detective isn't doesn't suddenly like lose his head but he loses it just enough to make him be able to rationalize like oh i'm just i'm just investigating her oh i'm just doing my due diligence oh i'm i'm just withholding like i i'm i'm forbearing from really you know throwing the book at her because she might be innocent we have we have to investigate more before we can really say and each step is just it's it's basically a Hitchcockian thriller as an act of seduction. Mm-hmm. There's a really uh, great sequence where um, he's staking out her workplace. Uh, she is a uh, her day job is as a caretaker. She's a nurse and uh, visits uh, elderly people in their homes and, and cares for them. And he's staking her out, and uh, he calls her from his stakeout car and tells her she needs to visit the police station to for them to take a DNA sample. Uh, and he's watching her through the binoculars as he's calling her on his cell phone. And then, you know, when she gets in her car, 
when she leaves her job and gets in the car to go to the police station, he follows her. And the way that uh, Park edits together this uh, this journey is that you know one of them turns on their turn signal and slowly turns the wheel and then we cut to the other one turning their turn signal and turning the wheel it's like a dance Mm -hmm. um they're they're dancing with each other even though one of them probably is a murderess again and one of them is following her and is obviously a little bit infatuated with her already but is also kind of like still trying to maintain some sort of veneer of professionalism Uh, and that's just it's poetic and it's also kind of it's a way for Park to use the seductive powers of of cinema and cross-cutting to sweep the audience along as well and be really excited to see what happens next. And that is, again, maybe another step in the dance of seduction is Park's movie is seducing us. Mm-hmm. And that's a really fun tension to just be a participant in, even as you're just watching what's transpiring on screen. I kind of want to get at the poetry of the visual language of this movie here too, because even just the title decision to leave kind of implies that there is a pinpoint moment where somebody makes a decision and they're going to follow through on that decision once they have hit that point. And I can't really quite pinpoint any one moment in the movie, except for maybe one where anybody makes a decision right there in the moment. It's as though they're just, you know, following what comes naturally, doing what they think they should in order to follow a lead or be polite or, um, you know, keep the peace as best they can. Um, It feels like an exploration of all of those minute little decisions uh, that nobody pays attention to making in the moment. Um, But when you look back, you can kind of see where all of this was going from the very beginning. Um, Yeah, I just it feels it feels like a masterwork of of bringing you along for the journey without pinpointing any of those steps within that journey. But when you look back and see what has happened beforehand, you can you can kind of follow along and pick up what Park is doing here. I also think that um, it's kind of a marvel having seen it twice, just like you have watching the movie the second time, knowing what's coming and knowing what's going to happen and being able to see that all of those decisions that felt very innocuous the first time around are screaming red flags the second time around as well. It's it's a marvel to be able to make a movie that gives you just as much, if not more, on the second watch. And I think he does manage to pull this off here, especially because the first time around feels as though Intentions are a little bit intentionally obscure because it's these two characters sussing each other out and trying to figure out what what the other is about, right? And then the second time around, you can kind of tell, or even really in, in the second half of the movie, because there is a turning point here. The second time around, the second meeting, the second encounter between these two characters, you have a slightly better sense of what everybody is up to and it kind of lends the story from being a romance into more of a tragedy and again there's like the there's one fulcrum moment where you can kind of pinpoint that shift but you can't stop that shift once it's happened if that makes any sense at all like structurally it's a marvel too it's it's interesting because it I, I mentioned earlier how how it's almost the, the film as a whole functions as an act of seduction, mm-hmm. um, both the, the seduction that we see between these two characters and also 
the film with the audience. But it also is interesting the way that technology plays a role in this film. Mm. There's, I mean, there's so so much of the the role of technology woven throughout characters calling each other on the phone characters narrating their experience into a smart watch um one of my probably my favorite shot in the entire film is where um there's the the detective and his suspect are sitting in an interrogation room they are uh, filmed in profile and their reflections can be seen in the one-way glass behind them and i'm not sure how Park and his cinematographer achieve this effect, but um, she is, uh, at any given moment, she is in focus. Her reflection is out of focus, while at the same time, his reflection is in focus and he himself is out of focus. Mm -hmm. And in the same shot, those two, the inverse of those two things keep flipping back and forth, uh, which is, I, I, I think I might have even missed it the first time, but the second time it just popped right out me as a great little visual shorthand of how these characters are kind of putting up a front of plausible deniability Mm -hmm. of of not quite giving the their full selves letting that show it's essentially like a flirtation but a flirtation couched in an interrogation where similarly to uh the way the interrogation is going, flirtation is almost all about plausible deniability as well. Like, Hmm. I'm showing my interest, but I'm showing it in a way that's not overt. Hmm. It's just enough so that if my advances are rejected or if it doesn't seem like things are working out, I can withdraw without suffering any loss of face. Hmm. And the way that Park Chanuk is is pinpointing like, oh, flirtation, that kind of act of self-protection can also function in a criminal context as well. And in this uh, breaking of all professionalism and boundaries between a detective and his suspect, it's a game of cat and mouse, but it's a game of cat and mouse where the play is much more erotically charged than than uh, you normally see. And it's very interesting to see the different angles that Park uses to do that in the way that technology acts as a mediator of that boundary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great shot. Kim Ji Young is the cinematographer here and deserves, you know, all of the awards for probably just that shot alone. I was thinking about that exact same scene kind of through a, a slightly different lens as well, because um, sure, it's definitely a flirtation. There's definitely that interrogation that's happening as well. Um, you even get a little bit of both characters looking directly into the camera, kind of in an almost Ozu f- sort of familiarity there. Um, although in, in Park's hands, it feels a little bit more, a little bit less at arm's length and a little bit more intentionally intimate, I think. Um, but that shot also happens as the two characters are communicating through a translator app on one of their phones. So um, the detective speaks Korean and the suspect speaks Chinese as her first language. And repeatedly when she introduces herself to other people, she says, I'm Chinese, my Korean is insufficient. And then people are continually trying to translate simple ideas for her. And I think that that serves to have all of them kind of underestimate her and her ability. Um, But in the interrogation scene, she's giving her story into the phone and then the phone is also mediating that relationship and that idea back and forth between the two of them. And as the two start to get to know each other 
a little bit better. They're speaking with each other a little bit more. Sometimes she'll code switch a little bit and she'll shift over to Chinese whenever she's saying something that she really, truly feels. And um, he tries to communicate some of the slightly more complex ideas that he thinks that she won't get in Korean to her as well. But there's always that phone in between the two of them. There is always that thing that is both facilitating their relationship and also proving to be a barrier between what they each probably already know about each other but cannot bring themselves to admit. Um, it's a really smart use of technology because it just allows it to sit there and then also be loaded with meaning. It's not just a tool for the characters to use. It's also a very clever piece of, of visual shorthand for their relationship and then also an added layer of thematic depths in this character's, like, in, in the interplay between these characters. I really like Tang Wei as uh, So Rai, the, the, uh, the suspect here. Yes. Um, her performance is wonderful, and part of it is because you're never quite sure just how much calculation is going to, into her employment of some of these devices. So when she whips out the phone for the, to use the translation app from Chinese to Korean, is she doing that because it's uh, she uh, doesn't have the words or is she doing it to just sort of like add a little bit of, of a buffer between her and the person she's talking to? Is she signaling that she deeply feels what she is saying or is she just wanting... Uh, <laughs> Is she just wanting Hei Jun to think that that's what it's all about? And that the, the degree of calculation, uh, Park keeps us guessing throughout the entire picture, and, and Tang Wei's performance keeps us guessing throughout the entire picture, mm -hmm. just how much we can trust her. And that also, that gives it a little bit of a charge because you kind of, like the detective, we kind of want to get to the bottom of her as well. We want to know what's going on when we get that shot of her, you know, that Ozu-like shot of her that's very intimate where it's, you know, her smack dab in the center of the frame, mm -hmm. what is going on behind those eyes? What's going on inside her head? Mm -hmm. And you don't really under know until the film's final minutes just how sincere she's being. And I like how there's a, a late film uh, exchange between her and Hey June mm -hmm. where... Uh, she's wearing a uh, a headlamp that's got a some sort of like electronic battery pack on the back that's flashing almost like an android like a what you'd see on a Star Trek show with an android or something that's yeah. just flashing back and forth and that moment she's sort of kind of a cyborg <laughs> like it, it's an interesting effect because hmm. again you're not sure like is this is that park signaling to us that maybe she's not being as sincere as she wants uh hey June to think hmm. um it's it's just it's a wonderful way for him to just kind of like just keep that little that little grain of doubt present all the way up until the very end. And I think what makes that work is that it's clear that she is a character in her own right. I think um, Decision to Leave's been compared to Vertigo in particular um, as being you know Park's Hitchcockian movie, um, and I think that that's kind of an unfair comparison because. 
Vertigo is very much in Jimmy Stewart's head, but it doesn't really ever get into his subject's head all that well. And we don't really get into Tong Wei's head either, but you do get the sense that there is something going on and she isn't just a powerless pawn in the detective's game in kind of the same way that that Vertigo at least feels like. there's In, in Vertigo, there, there is like this elision of agency in the female part and in the female role. And here... I don't believe for a second that there is any loss of agency whatsoever. There is a loss of choice in some cases, but there is never that loss of agency. And so, um, I don't know, I, I respect this movie very mightily for being able to draw that line and to be able to show that character's, you know, free will, if, if that makes sense. Um mostly through her inaction and then also through the way that she mediates herself with the technology around her and the world around her. Yeah, that that comparison with Vertigo is really interesting because it kind of highlights what's great about both films at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, Vertigo is a great film, mm-hmm. but Vertigo is about obsession. Mm-hmm. And Decision to Leave is also a great movie, but it's it's really, it's much more romantic. Like the, there is some sort of a... a genuine connection between these two how much of it is uh is so ray's um calculation to you know kind of throw him off the scent is an open question but she's not faking it entirely there is a genuine connection here and park is really at heart there is a romance here and there is a very intentional use of uh, wonderful, uh, you know, strings and and a, uh, like the soundtrack is just mm-hmm. it, it's very self consciously romantic. It makes you want to feel things, and that's not just a ploy. It's because these two people do have some sort of a connection, and that's really the big difference between these characters. You kind of part of you does want them to be together, whereas you watch Vertigo and you're just like they should not be together. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the point Mm -hmm. and i I don't know i think that's a really instructive comparison to make they aren't uh analogous but there's something going on in both of them that kind of throws the other's virtues into sharp relief Mm -hmm. yeah i agree with that read too um yeah i don't know like there's i feel like i could talk about this movie for just about forever i do appreciate too that um park is willing to show the development of this relationship and to elide all of the violence except the emotional violence as well like Chanuk can be really really um extreme i think depending on which movie you're you're watching and in this one i don't think you see any acts of violence at all you just see the aftermath and the repercussions of that and then you see the emotional repercussions of those acts as well um it feels subtler and stronger at the same time um both of those details yeah it, it is I, I was surprised actually i was expecting having seen some of park's other more extreme films i was expecting this film to be uh much more uh violent and outre in its turn and it really wasn't and i think that that's why it feels like a romance mm-hmm. is he he's, he's he's consciously throttling back on the extremity saying like no i kind of i do want to seduce you i don't want to put you off I want to draw you in. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, it, it kind of shows that Park knows when he, when it's appropriate to go crazy and when it's appropriate to really throttle back and be more restrained. And yeah, I don't know. I, I think that he succeeds in the end. Like I was, 
I was seduced by this film in a way, and I I can't wait to see it again. Honestly, yeah, same here. Um, yeah, no no extreme violence, but at the same time, uh, to quote a character in this movie, Park Chanuk isn't exactly benevolent either. You know, he's he's like the sea. There's some turmoil there, and mm-hmm. if you're really willing to plumb those depths, it'll take you to some pretty dangerous and interesting and seductive places yeah well listeners that is our review of decision to leave uh it is going to be available on streaming on mubi uh this weekend so if you get a chance to pop on over there and watch it we'd highly recommend it obviously yes um and if you do take advantage of that opportunity definitely let us know your thoughts there's a lot to dig into with this film But that'll do it for this week's episode. Next week, we've got another big movie on deck. We are going to be talking about Avatar 2, The Way of Water, a movie literally like 11 or 12 years in the making. Mm -hmm. This has been promised for a long time. So This has been a movie that I've been waiting my entire career as a film critic to watch. So I, for one, am very excited to discuss it on the podcast. Well, we're going to be doing that next week. So buckle up, listeners. It should be a good one for sure. But that'll do it for this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you, of course, by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.